All right, and uh, welcome back. Tonight our guest is uh, Dana Schwartz. Dana, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So why don't you start off by telling us a little about yourself. So I'm a writer. I'm based in Los Angeles. After graduating from college, I you know, moved to New York and did uh, some of the like sort of pop culture journalistic writing that I, I think I sort of broke into the writing world through. Uh, you know, I interned at The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I worked briefly in the as a cartoon assistant at The New Yorker and then wrote for magazines like Mental Floss, The New York Observer, freelancing for Glamour, Marie Claire, Vanity Fair, ultimately landing as a staff writer at Entertainment Weekly, although now I uh, work on my own writing full-time. So you've definitely been around the block a few times, I take it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I feel like that was the whirlwind, like, 30-second version of my resume. <laughs> well, it's definitely impressive. I'll give you that. Oh, well, thank you so much. So now you started doing this podcast with iHeartRadio, which our station over here in New York is also a part of, um, called Noble Bloods. Do you want to just fill us in a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. So my entire life I've been fascinated by uh, history, but more specifically the history of the monarchy and royals and royal big European royal families, particularly. And I think uh, Aaron Mankey, the amazing you know, podcast producer extraordinaire, shared that fascination. We worked together to create Noble Bloods, which is, you, you know, me not as a historian so much as me as a writer, novelist lover of history being able to tell these stories in a way that feels you know like stories yeah you definitely do a great job with it. i mean i've listened to it every single time a new episode comes out it definitely just feels like you're just telling like the story or the biography of that royal and what made them so noble or so different throughout history well thank you so much that's what i'm going for <laughs> so you did your first episode on marie antoinette and i may ask like why marie antoinette yeah, I think the reason I wanted to cover her first in the show is that she's a figure that most people are familiar with, but they probably don't know a whole lot about. I mean, Marie Antoinette, like, what everyone just knows, she said, let them eat cake, which she never actually said. And I think we, we get this sort of pop culture idea of her as this woman in the giant dresses and the giant hair, when really when you look at the story, she's a much more nuanced, interesting figure. So I wanted to challenge myself in telling the story or a version of her story that people might not have been familiar with, even though it's someone that they thought they knew. Yeah, we all seemingly have this view of just like you said, let them eat cake and everything, or that she just was the royal with her husband, Louis XVI, who got killed by the guillotine. We don't really usually think about what else went into her story. Exactly. And especially I loved, you know, the, that episode, my first episode, I focus on her final months and when she was in prison because I think that's when she's most vulnerable. I think, you know, she's a, she's sort of become a historical villain, but it's always interesting to see villains at their, at their most human and most vulnerable. Yeah, it definitely is an interesting uh, view to take because like you said, she definitely is viewed as a villain, especially when the French revolution started, she was kind of viewed as like this high class royalty taking too much from the, from the people and just, Basically, it was just a view of excess. Oh, exactly. And, I mean, they're not wrong. Like, she, she, the, the monarchy was incredibly indulgent and, and people were suffering. But uh, it wasn't quite her fault. She was the queen. She <laughs> was married to a king. She wasn't, like, making economic policy. And she, uh, I mean, she had been married from the time she was, like, 14. She yeah. didn't know what 
the any she didn't know any different. She was raised a certain way. She lived the way she was raised, and so I think that uh, casting her as a villain is convenient, but maybe not the most interesting way to approach the story. She's kind of a scapegoat if you actually think about it, right? Oh, for sure. And she was a scapegoat at the time. I mean, like the propaganda is ludicrous. It's almost hilarious how uh, how massive and outlandish the propaganda was, at, even at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting to think about, like, because also, like you said, she's she was married since she was like fourteen. She yeah. basically basically went off as a way to gain an alliance with, I think, France with was it Austria or Austria. Germany? Austria. She was an Austrian princess, and that was also part of the reason they hated her is that they thought she was an Austrian spy, which she wasn't. You know, they thought she was collaborating behind uh, France's back, which again, she really wasn't. She was just. Uh, a very naive person who was never educated for that situation that she was put into and then uh, was in the very wrong place at the very wrong time. Like, was she out of touch? Absolutely. But no one ever told her that she was supposed to be in touch. <laughs> now, this was a very common practice during that era of time, if I'm not mistaken, right? Oh, yeah. No, for, for centuries, marriages were only meant to solidify uh, diplomatic alliances. They were basically the uh, the handshake of royal families. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, because you just keep on hearing about, like, how, like, some British nobility were from Germany and, like, all this other stuff with, like, Marie Antoinette being from Austria. It seemed to be all over the place with it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, this is a, a few a few years later, but Queen Victoria was called the, the grandmother of Europe because she had so many children and grandchildren just spread out through all the royal courts of Europe. It's ludicrous. So instead of treaties, they just married off their children or whatever it seems like? Yeah, they had treaties, and then to make sure the treaties stuck, they sent a daughter over there. <laughs> it's hard to believe anything like that would happen, but, like, I don't know. It definitely did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole irony with the name of the show, which is Royal Blood, is that I'm, I wanted to point out like how ridiculous it was that these people were chosen to rule, not even chosen, you know, deemed to rule because of their blood, when, you know, obviously that means absolutely nothing. These were just like, even politicians today, whether you agree or disagree with them, they have certain qualities that elevated them to the office. Even if it's not intelligence, then it's you know, leadership ability or ability to sort of rally people behind them, you know, uh, appeal, yeah. whatever, charisma, something. There definitely is a lot these of things people were just, Yeah, these people, in, I mean, sort of are, when you think of it, just plucked from random. They're literally, they win a genetic lottery, they're born, and then these aren't symbolic positions. You know, nowadays being king or queen is more of a symbolic position, but these people were randomly selected to have legitimate political power. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, also their power kind of went unchecked in some cases, where they kind of just had absolute power if they were a noble, especially the king or queen. Yeah, absolutely. Depending on the, the monarchy, uh, autocracies were were real. Yeah, and then now, since we talked about Marie Antoinette, I kind of just want to switch you over to another noble, um, Richard III. Yeah, he's a, a great one. I love him because we get some uh, Shakespeare propaganda in there. You know, Richard III has sort of become the villain of history, you know, for, uh, you know, murdering his two nephews in the tower. 
even though there's no real evidence of that. Uh, the virtue of the third is fun because we, when someone like Shakespeare writes a play about him, that becomes the dominant cultural legacy of him, regardless yeah. of, of what his role was actually like. When, in fact, he was probably a much less like sort of maniacal, snidely whiplash villain. And you have to remember the time that Shakespeare was writing in, which was for, you know, the Tudor dynasty and the Stuart and then the, you know, Stuarts. But the, the Richard III dynasty had been defeated. And that's, what do they say? History is written by the victors. And it's also written by poets uh, performing for the victors. Yeah, so you mentioned the Shakespeare play. Could you just, for the, those in the audience who don't know much about that play, Richard III, could you fill us in a little bit on it? Sure. Richard III, uh, you know, his brother was the king, his brother dies, and then next in line are uh, the king's, you know, former king's two sons. And the way that history sometimes painted in broad strokes is Richard III manipulated it so that he got to be on the throne and then locked his two nephews away to their untimely deaths, although we don't know how or when they died in actuality. Okay. Because, like, another thing people think about today whenever they think about Richard III, besides Shakespeare, is that how his body was uncovered underneath a parking lot in England. Oh, which is, which is totally real. That's crazy. I thought that, was, that story was amazing, especially because I think it revealed also that he did have a hunchback, after all, that... <laughs> You know, even if it probably wasn't sort of like the ogreish portrayal that that Shakespeare was so able to poetically conjure, I mean, their nutrition was really bad back then. Everyone was probably messed up in in certain regards. Yeah, I mean, they also came up with just like all these different wounds that he might have gotten in battle. Like I, I believe it's called the Battle of the Roses and everything. That even after he died, he might have been strapped over a horse, and people might have still just been like stabbing his body and everything. Yeah. I mean, who knows? That's my kingdom for a horse and all that. Yeah. So, I mean, what else? Did he do, like, anything significant in his lifetime, or is he mostly just known just for, like, the play and being discovered under a parking lot? Well, he had a, a relatively short reign, so it's, it's not so much. I, I don't think most people are examining him as a king. I think what's most interesting is him as a figure when you want to learn more about the War of the Roses which is the Yorks and the Lancasters fighting in a Game of Thrones-style, uh, you know, years-long battle of intrigue and intermarriage, which is ultimately ended when uh, Henry V does the smart move of marrying a, uh, a York and deciding to put, let bygones be bygones, changing their family name to Tudor and moving on from there. It does seem very Game of Thrones-esque, I will say that. Oh! Yeah, Yorks, Lancasters, Starks, Lannisters, he, like, barely changed it. He was very lazy. <laughs> yeah, so it definitely seems that he wasn't really as significant, but he's mostly known just for being, quote-unquote, hunchback uh, who wanted power. <laughs> Again, I'm not, like, a, a <laughs> military or political historian. Like, I'm sure you could look into... Yeah. Things that he might have done, but I think that to the layperson or to me, he's less interesting for like, I don't know, any specific minor trade rules that he passed and more because he was a major figure in this fascinating uh, literal Game of Thrones. Yeah, so 
since there doesn't really seem to be much to cover with him, why don't we switch over to one that definitely will have a lot more to cover, um, Henry VIII. Oh, God, love Henry VIII. Love me some Henry VIII. So what do you love about Henry VIII, then? You know, I almost think I haven't covered him yet on Noble Blood, and I think that I probably won't because most people know his story too much. Okay. I mean, he was this golden boy prince who became a golden boy king, got married six times, started the Church of England. He was monarchy incarnate, you know what I mean? Like, he, he was this figure that, that uh, bent England to his will. And, I mean, the, the, the six wives are a, a great way in. They're just sort of like a fun and, and lurid detail from his life that people seem to uh, attach themselves to. But, uh, I mean, his big legacy is separating England from the Catholic Church, but his personal life is just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember, which wife was it again that he tried to divorce that the Catholic Church wouldn't let him? Was it the third wife or the fourth? That was his first wife, actually, oh, Catherine okay. of Aragon. Yeah, his, his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, was a Spanish princess, tried to divorce her. Catholic Church absolutely would never have allowed that, especially because, you know, Spain is, was such a massive Catholic ally. Uh, so he was excommunicated, started the Church of England, and uh, married Anne Boleyn, who was later beheaded. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to think, because, like, I, for once, I mean, you just corrected me, I thought it was, like, is there a fourth wife that he wanted to divorce and they wouldn't let him, but it turns out it was actually his first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... First wife. It goes, uh, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Well, his sixth wife was lucky in one sense, then. Yeah, lucky in that she outlived him. Because, you know, many some historians do posit that if he had survived longer, he probably would have be, wanted to behead her, too. Now, are there any reasons that come up to, like, why he divorced or beheaded all his wives? I mean, each one has its own individual reasons. Catherine of Aragon... Uh, couldn't provide him a son. They kept trying to have a son. He couldn't. He Henry got obsessed. You know, he had a daughter at this point, Mary Tudor, who became Mary the First. But uh, he wanted a son. She was getting too old. He got it in his head that God was punishing him for marrying his brother's widow, which, yeah, Catherine of Aragon had been married earlier to his, his brother who, who died. Uh, and so he, And then he fell in love with Anne Boleyn, who promised him a son. And then, of course, Anne Boleyn didn't prompt, didn't uh, didn't deliver on the son, gave him Elizabeth, uh, and then had accusations of witchcraft, of cheating, beheaded her. Number three was a German princess named Anne of Cleves, who uh, was basically a, a historical catfish in the sense that they sent a portrait along of her that Henry sort of was enchanted by. Then, when he actually met her in person was uh, not into her at all, immediately, you know, uh, figured out a way to divorce her, and that marriage was annulled. She basically got the best deal out of all of them because she got to retire rich and sort of happily live out the rest of her life as the king's quote-unquote sister, as they called her. Hmm. The next wife, I think we're on number four at this point. Uh, yes. Uh, we had de- oh, I skipped one. Sorry, before Anne of Cleves was... Uh, was the wife who died in childbirth, who he did fall in love with, who did give him a son, died in childbirth. Then we have the one who he divorces for because she doesn't look as good as she does in her portrait. 
Wow. Then we have a very then we have a very very young princess, a really beautiful one, Catherine, who uh, you know was a teenager, and Henry was kind of old at this point. She uh, you know flirted with other men and had affairs, and that led to her being uh, being uh, executed. You know, yeah. he had it, and then uh, the last one outlived him. Well, I mean, he definitely did live a fascinating life. Uh, very full, very fascinating life, absolutely. There also were some reports that he was just like this like huge glutton, too, that I've heard. Is that true? Late in his life, absolutely. I think early on in his life, he was sort of this, you know, golden prince hero. And then late in his life, he got incredibly corpulent, especially after he had a uh, jousting accident that um, just sort of uh, damaged his leg and then made it... Uh, I think exercise. Okay, yeah, because you definitely hear all these reports about like these ginormous feasts he would have towards the end of his life, of, like multiple hogs and like all these different types of food that you would eat. And just like, man, one yeah, person it, ate all that. It's very uh, Renaissance fair. Very much so. <laughs> now, kind of just to switch gears and go to another noble who's similar to Henry would be his daughter Elizabeth. Yeah, I mean, similar in the sense that they both had tempers. They both had that sort of flaming golden red hair. And they both were uh, absolute monarchs in absolutely every sense of the word. They wanted full control. They, 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 they're both uh, some of England's longest reigning monarchs. And, uh, but she was sort of the opposite approach when it came to marriages by having absolutely zero. Really? What led to her having zero marriages? Uh, a few things. Uh, I think for her, she knew that her position as a queen would be weakened if she had a husband. Uh, the way the, the church and the nation was structured meant that if she was married, her husband would have, you know, control over, over her in that regard because a wife is supposed to submit to her husband. I think there would have been uh, difficulty and controversy if she wanted to marry a foreign prince that would have left England vulnerable. And I think on, on a personal reason, she was probably scared of childbirth. I mean, childbirth was a massive risk at that time. It would, could both incapacitate or kill her. And I think she realized, uh, rightly so, that she could rule the only way for her to, to have singular power was for her to be a single monarch. Okay. She was also the one, the monarch that sent um, colonists to Roanoke, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Uh, yes. I don't know too much about Roanoke, right? That's the mystery colony that disappeared. Yeah. But yeah, Walter Raleigh and, and all of that was during uh, during the Elizabethan era. I mean, that's why it's named Virginia, for the, the Virgin Queen. Yeah. And then she also, did she continue on the, the uh, Anglican tradition like her, that her father started, or was it kind of just like she tried shifting back but didn't fully work? No, no, actually less of a carrying on, because remember, Elizabeth didn't inherit the throne directly from her father. Yeah. First it went to her, her younger brother, Edward, who was very sickly and died as a teenager. And then it went to Elizabeth's older sister, Mary, who was a Catholic and, and is called uh, Bloody Mary in history because she tried to restore the, the Catholic Church and punish Protestants in England, did not work out well. And so then when Elizabeth came in, 
you know, re, re-galvanized the Church of England and was a Protestant leader. Uh, I think that was a, a relief for most of, most of England. So I'm guessing then after that, the whole entire Catholic Church's relationship with England was severed then, just cut off. Um, yeah, it gets a little more complicated than that, because obviously since Elizabeth doesn't have children, then the, the next in line, the, the Tudor line is over, so it goes to the Stuarts, and the Stuarts are, uh, become Catholic, and there's, there's some uh, problems there with, with the legitimacy of the, uh, of the, the like, English throne in the sense of whether a Catholic is allowed to take it. And again, I could I could bore you with stories about this from history, but up until the the glorious revolution, that's when Parliament declares that a Catholic would not be allowed to take the English throne, and they depose James II for his uh, daughter, who's married to William of Orange. But the the glorious revolution is when they uh, finally, I guess, explicitly say, "All right, no more Catholics, only Protestants." Church of England, let's go. Yeah, one thing as kind of a side note that is definitely interesting to think about, like the this kind of like butting heads between the the Church of England and the Catholic Church, especially with the royalty, especially because like the Catholic popes were not the best characters at this time either. No, I mean I think both sides are are both mocked and caricatured by by uh, the other, and it's not a good time for religious war in Europe. It is. Uh, incredibly bloody uh, for a long time, and uh, religious wars are still, a, you know, a thing that exists in the world today. It's not, it's not, not a good thing. I, I will explicitly say, Dana Schwartz, anti-religious warfare. Okay. Now, kind of also just to like kind of get away from England for a little bit, just to switch over to another noble you talked about, or you want to talk about being a uh, Catherine the Great. Oh yeah, love Catherine the Great. I think she's great because she. Uh, you know, overthrew her own husband, which is just metal. It's just amazing. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you know, tried to make Russia an intellectual capital of the world. She wanted salons. She was pen pals with Voltaire. I think she just sort of represents an enlightenment monarch in, in, uh, in the best sense of the word. She's fascinating to learn about. And uh, I definitely will do an episode about her because unlike Henry VIII, I don't think people know too much about her. <laughs> yeah, not many people actually do. I mean, you you can walk down a street and ask a hundred people who Henry VIII is. I'm pretty sure even here in America, 99 or even all hundred of them would know who Henry VIII is. But if you ask about like Catherine the Great, maybe only like 10 would know who she is. Uh, well, who knows? And that is a shame. I'll work on it. <laughs> Um, now, like, what were kind of moves that she did make to kind of make Russia more intellectual, as you say? Oh, I think it was mostly her as a as a human being. I think she loved to live by example. She, you know, cared a ton about art and architecture. She uh, invited. She wanted Russia to be a European power, and I'm saying Europe with all the uh, connotations connotations that go along with it she invited intellectuals she valued literature and writing um and those were those were really the enlightenment ideals at the time you know she wanted to modify the the feudal system and free the serfs that was really uh she wanted to bring uh 
Russia into the European court world. Yeah. Because, like, before her, it kind of just seems like all you hear about is, like, Ivan the Terrible and all these other emperors. And it kind of just seems like once she came to power, she just kind of wanted to bring Russia to its, like, its renaissance, like Italy had. Exactly. I think that's exactly it. Art, architecture, literature, and, of course, a more European model for court and courtly behavior. Yeah, was she also the one that tried to get men to shave their beards, or was that another one? I remember hearing something about, like, a ruling to get men to make them look more European was to get them to, like, stop growing beards. Oh, I think that might be her. I actually, I don't, I don't know too much about that, but that sounds great, and I love it. Yeah, because I remember... Very funny. Yeah, I think it was my history teacher who talked about it one time in class when we were talking about Russia. It was either her or Peter the Great. I think it was her, though. Uh, I mean, either one. They, uh, that, that is a move. That's absolutely the thing. When you, know, when, you want, when you want people to be European, nothing says Europe like, like bad facial hair. <laughs> now, since I just mentioned Peter the Great, what about a little bit about Peter the Great, then? You know, unfortunately, I don't know too much about Peter the Great other than the broad strokes. I, I, okay. I feel like I, I don't want to uh, show too much, but I haven't done it. I've been focusing mostly on England, Scotland, and uh, France and Italy for my podcast, and I haven't quite gotten to Russia yet. I'll work my way east. Okay. Well, then why don't we head back, because we have a few minutes left then, to the... <coughs> Large, the basically the most well-known monarch of today's world being Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth the first or the second? The second, the one living today. Yeah, wow, longest reigning monarch in English history. Yeah, I mean, for those who don't know much about her, I mean, what makes her like so special in the noble realm? Um, I think the the amazing thing about her, I mean, the thing to remember now is that England has a constitutional monarchy. And the monarch is more of a mascot symbolic figure than anything else. I mean, compared yeah. to someone like Henry the Great, who was having legitimate impact and had legitimate power to wage war, uh, Elizabeth I is just a beloved figurehead. I think her strength has been uh, in reestablishing what the monarchy is in a world where it sort of is irrelevant. I think so. her strength has been in her restraint. You know, she yeah. has been subsumed by the symbolism of, of the crown in a way that has strengthened the monarchy. I think the fact that we do not know a lot about her as a person, you know, as an individual, is absolutely by design. I think they know that people can distrust and dislike people, whereas the goal with Elizabeth I and the, uh, with the Elizabeth II and the goal with the English monarchy as a whole is to... Uh, you know, build a brand that can outlive individuals. So that's been her biggest achievement, I would say, is finding a, a role for the monarchy in a world that uh, doesn't actually have kings and queens anymore Yeah, because, in the way that they did. Yeah, because, like, the only big, like, thing that she did with the government was when... Um, basically recently with the prime ministers when like david cameron resigned he gave his resignation letter to the queen and then like when Theresa may couldn't form a government or something or something to that manner she basically had to go to the queen report yes i can make a government yes i mean again that's just a symbolic uh role her where you know she's meant to what consult and advise 
uh, and it's not. It's not as if the government is made in her name, but it's not as if she is literally governing. Yeah, it's different from like when President Nixon resigned in the 70s. He gave his letter of uh, resignation to Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, somebody who was below him. It's oh, yeah. I mean, because the, the president, you know, runs our country. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to look at that and also how like the national anthem of England revolves around whether it's a king or a queen. Yes, that's true. And uh, that that uh, that anthem is uh, has also a lot of weird verses about Scotland. Uh, it's not it's not it's uh, England has a lot of relics. It's a it's a strange and uh, interesting place, especially when it comes to history. I mean, they have hundreds of years more history than we have. It's it's so ludicrous traveling to to England and uh, you know them being like, oh, this building is pretty modern, and you look at it and you're like, oh, well, it's older than my entire country. Yeah, it's older than the founding of my nation. <laughs> yeah, because like as we said, like most people don't know much about her. Although the era that we're in probably in England is could be referred to in the future as the Elizabethan era, kind of like the Victorian era. Where like all people seem to know about her is like these little like quick tidbits and like fun facts they find online, and that she likes corgis or whatever. Yeah, I wonder if we'll call it the Elizabethan two era. We'll need to distinguish it some way from the first one. Yeah. All right, so we're almost out of time. Before we go, just one question for you. Um, sure. Who was your favorite noble in history, and why? Um, my favorite noble, was Henry VIII's wife. Because probably wasn't a witch, but if she was, that would have been amazing. Oh, okay, yeah, that definitely does seem like an interesting story. I'll definitely have to look into that myself. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for coming on with us. I have to have him, have him leave the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah, definitely will. Yeah, definitely does sound interesting. So thank you for coming on with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, well, have a good day or a good night. You too. You too. Bye.